Hello and welcome to the Stop Stressing Me Out podcast where we talk about all the things that stress us out in life and how to actually manage them for a much more fulfilling and joyful life. I'm your host Victoria Smith and today we are diving into a topic that those of you who follow me on Instagram, we had a great conversation and some polls and questions on it last week, but it's all about who is responsible for your stress at work, you or your employer or a combination thereof. So once upon a time, I was on an employee created action committee where we were pulling together feedback and suggestions on how to improve the well-being of our department. It was quite an emotional roller coaster, I'll be honest, because in order to provide meaningful solutions, you have to turn over all the stones, like everything that was causing us stress and anxiety for my team. And by the end of the process, I was quite drained from it, but I was also so incredibly hopeful. And then when it came time to and then it came time to present to our leaders. And let's just say feedback was mixed. <laughs> I can see in hindsight now that what they wanted was for us to come with far more solutions to the table than we did. We we came with the challenges. And from my perspective at the time, I think we felt that there were so many issues that weren't in our purview or our responsibility to resolve, and we maybe didn't know what the solutions were. But we felt that if we outlined the challenges and what was needed, that our leadership team were in the position from their past experiences to see what we couldn't see. Now, I had never been a manager, so I wasn't sure how much leaders actually have influence, budget, or ability to shift. So like I say, reactions were mixed, but there was one reaction that stood out. One of our senior leaders said something along the lines of, people need to take more personal responsibility for their stress. And at the time, I was super deflated by that. (laughs) Because from my perspective, I was seeing employees who were doing their absolute best to manage their health, using their mental health benefits to attend therapy, working out, attending stress management workshops, and doing whatever they could to keep things afloat, whatever their personal situation at home was, all while navigating unprecedented global circumstances of a pandemic. As a stress management coach, I also see the exact same thing in people. People don't come to me for help never having tried anything before. They come having tried lots of things, but they're deflated that nothing seems to stick or make a meaningful difference. I didn't have the wherewithal at the time to say this in that meeting, but it's been a question on my mind ever since that day. Who is responsible for stress at work? Is it the employer or the employee and who's responsible for what? So I'll be the first to admit that the title of this podcast is a little bit clickbaity in that neither side is fully responsible and that the answer is nuanced, but that's why it's a podcast and this is how we can dive into the nuances. So let's do that. Who is responsible for what? And how can we make transformational differences if we choose to take action, whether we're a leader or an employee? So let's start with the nuts and bolts of what an employer is legally responsible for when it comes to stress in the workplace. There are elements of stress where employees have legal protection. First up is physical stressors. So injury on the job is an obvious one. Uh, An employer has the responsibility to create a safe work environment. 
I remember my time in oil and gas where they take workplace safety incredibly seriously and not just on oil rigs. I was a regular office worker, yet we had uh, frequent safety moments on things like ergonomics, which is actually super helpful when you're sitting in a desk all day. And if you ever went down a stairwell without holding the handrail, you best believe someone would call you out on it. Physical stress and safety is not just something that could injure you on a work site, but also repetitive strain from clicking on your mouse to exhaustion on the job that leads to someone getting into a car accident. This is one of those areas that's pretty clear for both parties who is responsible for what, and to the employer's credit, must be harder for them to support in the world of remote work. In the office, they can ensure desks, chairs, and computer setups are standardized, As we work from home, however, that responsibility gets shifted into a gray area, meaning employees now need to be aware of their physical needs and be more proactive in resolving them. Nobody is telling me when I work at home to hold the handrail in my house, thankfully, but it also means that nobody is flagging my terrible posture at my desk, except my cat. Next, the employer has a responsibility to ensure employees feel safe at work from emotional abuse and intimidation like sexual harassment, intimidation, physical or verbal abuse, etc. Unfortunately, this is far more common than we would like to think. In a 2020 Stats Canada survey, it showed that one in four women and one in six men reported having experienced inappropriate sexualized behaviors at work in 2019. There are meant to be clear processes for reporting these types of incidents in the workplace, and yet the same study showed that almost a third of women and one quarter of men said they had never received any information from their employer about how to report sexual harassment and sexual assault. If you think about it, like we drill it into kids that if there is an emergency, they call 911 or your equivalent wherever you are in the world. Sexual harassment should be treated like an emergency, and yet I cannot recall in my last three workplaces learning about the process to report anything like this. I I just assume you would go to HR. An additional layer is that sexual harassment is often committed by those with a power imbalance that puts the victim in a precarious position. If you're ever in doubt, HR should know the process. You should reach out to your HR advisor for the process or review your intranet pages if you prefer to keep things confidential from the get-go, but it's likely all roads will return you to HR. Finally, there's a legal responsibility on the employer not to discriminate. Sadly, it still happens, but legally, an employer is not allowed to discriminate, and if discrimination is occurring in the workplace, they should be holding perpetrators accountable. Okay, we've gotten the legalese out of the way. So now let's dive into the juicy stuff. So like I said, I recently ran a poll on my Instagram asking what you thought an employer should be responsible for as regards to workplace stress. And here's what you said. The environment or the culture in which you're working in, providing reasonable workloads, hiring as needed, encouraging vacation time, and overall duty of care. I couldn't agree more with these and I'll add a few more, but let's dive into your responses. So let's start with building a culture or an environment which feels safe, less stressful, uplifting even. Depending on who you talk to or what website you read, some people will say leaders and or HR are solely responsible for culture. I've also worked in organizations where they say that every single person is responsible for the culture. Both sentiments absolve the other group from their contribution and don't assign the proper tasks to each party. 
Fearless Culture, which is a consultancy group that focuses on building strong workplace culture, they do a great job of defining the path of building and maintaining culture and who is responsible for which part. So let's break break that down a little bit. An intentional culture starts with a design phase. What do we want to be known for? What values do we actually care about as opposed to the list of eight to 10 values that we throw up on our website? Like when the rubber meets the road, if we could only live and thrive by one value as an organization, what would it be? You have to know where you want to go in order to get there. It's no surprise that in my coaching programs, we always start with values. They guide everything, but they can't be just for show. This usually starts with an organization's executive leadership defining the culture. But what about organizations where it's painfully obvious this work was never done? What you often then get is a culture by default instead of by design, where it truly doesn't matter what is listed on the website and the best way to understand what the culture is with any organization, frankly, is to start with the employee engagement survey and how people feel when they are at work. Two things can coexist. I think that's important to say. You can work at an incredibly fast-paced organization where the workload sometimes feels overwhelming and still love your job and feel engaged and want to come to work every day. These are often the organizations where there is purpose. People are feeling supported and you feel like you're making a real difference. You're learning, you're growing, you're challenged in a way that weathering the hard times feels doable. Or maybe you have the opposite by default. People are passing the time, they are overwhelmed, they are feeling underappreciated, they feel like a number and not a person. This is where we hear about quiet quitting happening, right? They're actively looking for new opportunities and would not recommend you to their peers. And then most other organizations fall somewhere in the middle. Real culture is living the values, not stating values. So design is just one phase that, again, is usually led by leaders, but can and should be informed by the people you as leaders serve. And some of this could come from an employee engagement survey from that feedback. Some of it could come from listening groups. Like there's all sorts of different ways to do that. The next phases of an intentional culture design are defining the new value or values, but like keep it tight and demonstrating it. So you have to walk the walk. I remember working in an organization where we held a value of accountability, and yet I was assigned a leader with whom I'd had past experiences working with, and I knew they didn't take accountability. So imagine the culture that was then being created on our team. That's another important piece to note. Subcultures will exist in any organization. You could work in a frankly nightmarish organization, but find pockets of magic where the right leaders are nurturing their teams, providing accountability, and seeing incredible results. Display is the next phase. So once the values of the culture have been rolled out and leaders are walking the walk, ideally, then it's now on employees to hold themselves accountable and each other accountable to these values, and leaders as well. And there's a way to do this without it being adversarial. So like, as I said, when I worked in oil and gas, we held each other accountable for safety. But what about everything else? I just finished Adam Grant's book, Think Again, which is all about how we can rethink our current beliefs and processes, whether as individuals or as organizations. He shared stories about NASA and how they used to be hyper-focused on launching on time, 
overlooking important safety measures. And this actually led to the explosion of the Challenger and how they had to evolve their culture into one of true reflection where people felt safe enough to question the status quo. He spoke about how previously, when signing off on a launch, if one person disagreed, they were made to feel like they as an individual had to prove what was wrong. Whereas now, the culture has shifted so that when someone expresses concern, it's now on the team to prove their process and that all avenues have been considered. What a shift. That kind of shift doesn't happen overnight, though. So how could the average non-NASA team do this? Part of it is in the language. Move towards we. What can we do to solve this? How can we think more creatively about problem XYZ? What can we as leaders do to support workplace stress management? Feedback loops shouldn't only happen once a year in an employee engagement survey. There should be continual informal and formal feedback loops. A year is just such an awfully long time to wait for feedback. So I don't know if you were counting there, but the leaders are involved and responsible for four fifths of those steps in culture creation and employees are responsible for one and can help inform the other. So one of the best things leaders can do to maintain culture is to spot personnel issues early and often and to deal with them. That doesn't mean fire people who has a, like who an employee has an issue with, of course not. It does mean, however, addressing the issue. It means having meaningful conversations, often difficult conversations, in order to nip the issue in the bud before the weed takes root. A good leader can then coach challenging individuals forward, or if the problem is so severe, they can then take stronger action. When I think back on the best leaders I had, for me, they were the ones who saw me and appreciated me as a whole person. It wasn't just what's on your plate work-wise this week. It was getting to know me. What, I, what did I like? What did I care about? What was going on with my own life? And not in a way to manipulate anything because those managers definitely exist as well, but because they actually cared. And they recognized as much for themselves as leaders as for me that we bring our whole selves to work. The key as a leader is to know the limit of what the employee wants to share. I had a coworker recently who said she dreaded sharing anything about her personal life with her manager. She only wanted to talk work, not life. She was a no-nonsense kind of person, and that's a boundary she set for herself. So it is a fine balance for leaders of trying to understand your employee, but also respecting their limits of what they want to share. And so much of all of this comes down to communication. Great leaders communicate openly leave room for their team to express themselves, and they can also read body language. I can tell you I'm fine, but if I'm hunched over, my arms are crossed, or I can't maintain eye contact, I'm probably telling you with my body that things are not okay. I just don't feel confident to say that. If the words that I'm using, busy, hectic, lots on the go, aren't tipping you off as a leader that I need some support, you need to ask more questions. Communication is a big one because it goes both ways. The leader needs to openly communicate and ask open-ended questions and really take an interest in the subject matter, aka their team. They need to be upfront about what's going on and transparent with any concerns. They need to communicate progress or lack thereof on initiatives so that their people are well informed, even if it's not the message they want to receive. The best leaders I've had have been able to say, this is all that I know, and as soon as I know more, I'll share what I can. 
I'm here to support you however I can in the meantime, especially in times of ambiguity or uncertainty. Your team know that you aren't going to be privy or able to share all the information, but they want to know that you'll share what you can. Then the employee needs to communicate their needs. So it can be so hard to ask for what you need, and sometimes you may not know exactly what that is, but then say that. Say something has been feeling off lately. I can't quite figure out what it is, but this is the way that I'm feeling. Then describe it as best you can, and then your leader can and should ask more probing questions to help you both get to the bottom of it. The important thing for everyone to realize is that neither party needs to have the answer. A lot of what happens in the workplace and in life is about a series of experiments. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed at work, and so you collectively decide you're going to take Friday afternoons off for the summer. Perhaps after a few weeks, you're finding the reverse is happening, and that the workload is only increasing and stressing you out. So you come back to the table and debate some new options. Communication isn't about having the answer, it's about being open to the process of experimentation and stating what is or isn't working. Nobody here is a mind reader. Now what about the T word, trust? Who is responsible for this? Well, both leader and employee are, however the timing matters. So the leader has to initiate trust building. The onus is on them. So if you're introduced to a new leader, uh, whether you just started with them as a new employee and they've been an existing leader or they're a new leader to your team, in those first 30 to 60 days, they need to work really hard to establish trust through accountability, doing what they say they're going to do, and really doing the work to get to know you. How can they build trust with you if they don't know anything about you? And then for the employee, you've then got to reciprocate, assuming that your leader has demonstrated they can be trusted. And when I say demonstrate, I mean their actions match their words. So you've seen it with your own eyes. I've made this mistake in the past, as have many people that I know, of trusting based on words alone. And while I like to be an optimist and say we can all believe what people say, you and I both know that actions are the follow through and that words are easy. In some instances, we need to take a leap of faith before we have a chance to see actions come through. And I'm a big believer in giving the benefit of the doubt, for sure. But if it's a situation where you're really putting yourself and your personal boundaries on the line, I prefer to wait and see actions prove out. Now, how can you build trust with your leader? The exact same way you expect them to build trust with you. Be open, follow through on what you say you're going to do. Be accountable when things don't go as planned, but search for a solution and potentially together. So we've talked about boundaries. Let's get into the nitty gritty of them. Both parties are responsible for different boundaries, and while that can sound like a scary or intimidating word, again, it comes down to communication, communicating your needs, expectations, and limits. I have a boundary that I don't email after hours. That doesn't mean I don't check them if it suits me, but I am not required to, and I will never email another person after hours. If I'm doing emails after hours because I want to, I will schedule it for a time that is more reasonable for them, and I expect the same in return. I will not respond to you after hours if I don't want to, because rarely in the corporate workplace are we saving lives. We can also hold boundaries on our calendar. If you don't block time to do the work you need to, it's so easy for your calendar to be overrun with meetings. And this goes for both leaders and employees, like take some ownership over your time so it doesn't take ownership over you. 
And the last piece of boundaries I would say is regards to your workload. Um, oh my gosh, I can remember so many times getting a little slack ping from a leader saying, do you have five minutes? Oh my gosh, I knew so quickly that that five minutes was them about to ask me, could I take on another client? Could I take on another piece of work? And for a long time, I was not confident saying no. Uh, You kind of just felt like you had to. And the older and wiser I've gotten, I've been firmer about saying no when I truly don't have the capacity. Because I know in the long run, it doesn't serve me and it doesn't serve the organization. Um, But it's really about assessing and knowing what your own limits are. Okay, so while there are so many other nuances to workplace stress we could cover, the last one that I want to dive into today is about overwhelming workloads. Who is responsible for this and how is it managed? I have so much empathy for both sides of the table here. Like I have many friends in leadership positions who are frankly doing the best they can, but their plates are equally full and it's impossible for them to know the full extent of what's on someone else's plate. It's on them to ask the question, to consistently ask and gauge how an employee is feeling about the load, and to assess what is a season versus what is becoming a problematic trend. In many workplaces, we know there will be hectic seasons based on what we do and who we serve. That does not, however, mean that we can expect people to carry this kind of load consistently without reprieve or end in sight. As an employee, you need to take stock of what your expectations are for yourself and whether they're realistic one way or the other. So I recently had a former boss of mine from way back in university share with me that even when I was 20 years old, he noticed the high expectations that I held of myself. Now, this is an ongoing issue that I work on with my therapist, but I know that I'm not alone in this. Our culture has pushed us to produce more, be more, excel more. The sky is the limit. And while great creations have come from this, it's also led to many generations battling burnout because of not enough rest, pauses, or space in our calendar. We're a walking to-do list. And as the leader, pay special attention when you have team members who exhibit signs of being high achievers. Just because they're producing doesn't mean they aren't struggling. And this goes back to the communication, asking good questions, and being honest about what your needs are. My favorite question a leader has ever asked me was simple. What do you need from me? And it can take you aback. It certainly took me aback, but it can be so powerful. A good leader will actively encourage you to take the time that you need. I'm not ashamed to say that in early 2022, I was reaching a point of burnout wasn't just work, but it was all the things in life in general. Work had been bananas, like I'd been going through endless changes of leaders and roles and lacking team support, but I was also feeling the compound pressure of the pandemic, of being the sole breadwinner for my family, and just the weight of what emotionally the past two years had been. I found myself multiple days in a row just crying on the staircase uh, out of sight of my kids And finally, I reached out to my temporary leader at the time and let them know that I needed to take the day off. And that entire day, I was feeling this impending doom of, I have to go back tomorrow, I have to go back tomorrow, I have to go back tomorrow. And at the end of the day, we actually had another conversation, my leader and I, and we agreed for me to take a full week off. And I literally stepped away. My leader found coverage for me, my out of office went on, and in the grand scheme of things, when I returned to work the next week, everything was fine. 
I spent that week outdoors, walking, getting coffee, napping, reading books. And you know what? For me, that week was all I needed. But for others and at different points in my life, you might need a lot more and you might need to speak to your doctor and your counselor about taking more time. But regardless, a good leader encourages this and lets you know that they're there to cover you and allow you to heal without fear or pressure. Good leaders also champion for extra support when their teams need it. Let me be clear, this doesn't mean they're always the decision makers and get to own the budget to hire more headcount, but they advocate fiercely and ask their own leaders, what can we drop while we wait for more headcount? They remind their own leaders that it's better to pull back in some areas rather than lose people to stress leaves or for them to quit or become disengaged. As individuals, we also have to do our best to throw what we have at the solution based on our capacity. I want to say that again, based on our capacity. So diet, exercise, counseling, time in nature, meditation, connection with friends and family, all of these things help your overall stress. And when you're less stressed in your life, you have more capacity to show up at work. But that list is long and overwhelming. And if you're already feeling the weight and pressure at work and you're already overwhelmed, it's going to be really hard for you to even contemplate getting all of these aspects of your life in order, which is why you start small. Baby freaking steps. I have a concept that I teach my clients that's called the five by five. So it's five self-care habits that each take five minutes or less to do and you do them daily. For me, right now, this is five minutes of stretching, five minutes of strength training, five minutes of connecting via phone or text with a friend, five minutes of tidying, and five minutes of prepping for the next day to make my day easier. They're little things that I can always make time for because they're five minutes long. And as I build the habits and feel that dopamine hit of achieving them, I will continue to show up. So what would your five by five be to kickstart your path to feeling better, stronger, calmer? What I know to be true is that people want to help themselves, but when they're in so deep, it's hard to see the forest for the trees. And I think this is really why that day when that leader said people should be taking more personal responsibility for their stress, that I responded so viscerally. Because in my experience, people are trying. They are trying and doing their best. And we need help. Both leaders and employees, we need help. And for all the leaders listening, anyone who's in a leadership position, remember that you too have your own leader. You too are an employee with needs. And it's that fine balance of serving others while making sure your own needs are met. So what do you think? Did this resonate with you? Did you disagree with anything? Let me know over on Instagram at stresslessladies. And before we sign off, I wanted to share an exciting opportunity that I've put together, and it's called Stressless at Work. It's an eight-week one-to-one coaching program where we walk through your particular workplace stressors and build your personal toolkit and plan to make work a much more joyful place. We'll talk about values, psychological safety, building boundaries, matching your routine to your energy, returning to a curiosity mindset, and much more. Over 70% of us are moderately or extremely stressed at work, and it bleeds into every part of our lives. And I am so passionate about helping folks work through this so that work becomes a part of your life that you thrive in and not dread. Because I've been in both camps, and thriving is, quite frankly, so much more fulfilling. 
If you would like to explore if this is a good fit for you, you can book a discovery call with me free of charge, and the link is in the description of this episode. We'll also discuss the phenomenal summer pricing I have for the program, because summer is honestly the best time to work on these. You're feeling more calm and relaxed. You likely have more time in your schedule, so it's way better to work on these issues when you're not overwhelmed and in the thick of it. Again, if you want to explore this book, a discovery call with me ASAP, because I only have three spots open for the summer. Until next week, have a fantastic time and take good care.